You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. I would say that if they'd adhered to the Spurs way right through their history, they would have been more successful. The problem was that they had a number of managers who didn't understand the Spurs way. Let me just point out that there's no shame in looking at your football club as a brand because what a brand does, it provides emotional and rational values and it treats fans like customers. Winning is an important ingredient in the Spurs way, but it's been forgotten along the way, certainly by critics of Tottenham. And Pochettino has restored that, so you could say that he is a true descendant of Bill Nicholson. Hi there. Now, this is going to be a difficult episode for me. It's with a previous guest, Alex Finn. He's the former Sachi and Sachi executive who's been called the spiritual godfather of the Premier League. That's because he wrote the commercial section of the FA's original blueprint for the future of football. That was the document that supported the new breakaway competition in the early 90s. So far, so good. The problem is Alex has just co-authored a book on Tottenham Hotspur's advancement on and off the field. As most podcasters know, I grew up in a house called Highbury, led content strategy for Arsenal between 2002-2015, and struggled to think positively about a club that Pat Rice would only call that lot from down the road. So don't expect any BBC impartiality on this one. All joking aside, Alex has interesting views on football's finances, marketing, ethics, governance. There's links to his book in the show notes, and also for a talk he's holding at Birkbeck College in London on September 23. Hopefully, you'll be hearing this podcast around that time and you'll be able to make his talk if you're interested. It's comparing Arsenal and Tottenham. That's what he's going to talk about, their recent fortunes. And we do cross into that particular debate in this podcast. Uh, Remember, if you want to contact me, go to my website, mrrichardclark.com. Click on the contact button and reach out to me if you've got needs for a digital consultant or you want me to speak at your conference or you just want to say hi. You want to suggest anyone for the podcast as well. That would be interesting too. Always looking for guests. Anyway, let's talk about that lot from down the road with this man. My name is Alex Finn. I used to be important in advertising, which got me into football. The problem was that I was successful in advertising by being comparatively honest, which was a huge liability in football. Nevertheless, I did have some very uh, enjoyable experiences. I worked for the FA, the Football League, and several Premier League clubs advising them on media and marketing. However, as rights, particularly broadcast rights, got centralised, it less it made less scope for an independent like myself. So I resorted to writing. So in effect, writing is my third career. Writing and talking, because I also do lectures mainly on the university circuit. Talking from my own personal experience and writing from my own personal experience. Uh, My latest book is about Tottenham. The first book on Tottenham for a number of years. I have written about Arsenal. um, And I tend to write about the clubs that I know where I've worked for or whom I've worked for and to which I have some sort of access. And as we stand now, um, I've got a lecture at Birkbeck next week and I'm very keen to promote the new book on Tottenham, which is out this week. (laughs) So thanks for your time, Alex. Now we're talking about Tottenham, which is always slightly painful for me, especially as we're talking about a resurgent Tottenham, a Tottenham yes. that are, are on the up, and that's, yeah. that's even as a, a died in the wool, red and white hearted person as myself, I have to accept that Tottenham are on the up. They've usurped Arsenal, are certainly in the league table in terms of Champions League status. Can I just take you back to the start of your relationship with Tottenham? Because you were in charge of, or you created the first television campaign marketing campaign for a football club selling tickets selling the basis of tickets and that was the famous one with the fans running out in relation to the it was a fan and then a player and then a fan and then a player and they were announcing the members of the public as well as the team so just tell us how that well do you remember it very well Richard? i do i remember your recall's terrific well a i do a little bit of research before i do these interviews but also i do remember that advert it was different i remember a little old lady coming out that's right yes her name was uh, mrs ridlington 
and she became a folk hero for the fans. When the players didn't play too well, they said, bring on Mrs. Ridlington. The idea was um, that the fans and the players were inseparables, and the line was, make sure you're one of the team. So the team came out, and the, fo- the fans followed on, and we had a celebrity fan in there as well. Peter Cook was one of the ones we used. Um, and that was to try and people thought it was to improve the image but it wasn't it was to try and sell attendances and season tickets unfortunately you can only do that when the team are playing well advertising can't compensate for a poor product and Tottenham were not a good product at those times so the first ad worked very well because Tottenham hadn't kicked a ball. It was pre-season and they had a full house against Coventry. And what year was this? What year? This would be the mid-80s. The mid-80s. Um, but then Tottenham uh, sort of stalled and the club wanted us to advertise and I just refused. I said, well, I'd be wasting your money because advertising can't compensate for a poor product. So when you start winning again, we'll start advertising again. But that was an unusual thing for a club to do. They've always relied on loyalty yeah. thus far, and now you're advertising. So I think I remember Arsenal fans taking the mickey a little bit that they needed to advertise, and, and they will still, uh, Arsenal fans or, or any fans, will take the mickey out of anyone who's advertising their tickets in the London Standard, the London Evening Standard, the local paper, because, oh, you can't sell your tickets out of loyalty, etc., etc. And you were overtly selling tickets so it was slightly controversial at the time or at least very different but successful because it did sell season tickets and it did approve attendances but only so far as the team lived up to the expectations created by the advertising so if arsenal fans criticized it it's because they criticized it because they really didn't understand the motivations behind it and indeed a number of years later i did an advertise an advertised short advertising campaign for arsenal when they played um, France in a friendly game. They couldn't sell tickets through loyalty. They had to use advertising in order to try and sell tickets. So we did a short radio ad and we improved attendances. The attendances, I think, was just over 20,000, which wasn't good, but it was half of what they were going to get before they advertised. Oh, sorry, I mean, it was double what they were going to get before they advertised. <laughs> well, I was going to say, how, at that point in time, going back to the Tottenham advert in the mid-80s and even the Arsenal advert for the France, friendly, how did you prove success? Because these days, you've got modern metrics, you've, yeah. you've got digital metrics, etc. At that point, you say it improved attendance, it improved uptake of tickets. Well, how do you pr- prove that direct link back in the mid-80s? The club would have an, an estimate of anticipated attendance if you uh, go over that then it's successful so the criterion is just money you know whether you have been successful in improving attendances or selling season tickets as the case may be and superseding expected success exactly right exactly so let's move on to the to the book uh, you've got out now it's one step from glory which uh, it's, it's titled The Story of Tottenham's Tottenham Hotspur's Champions League Campaign 2018-2019. Yes. Still didn't win the, win the trophy, Alex. I'm going to get that one in. I've got well, to get a few Arsenal um, if, if they'd have won the trophy, You'd have the book time. probably wouldn't have happened because Tottenham would have produced their official book. Mm. What should have happened to make the book even more chance of success, although Tottenham fans do like the idea that it was a a most unusual season. They should have lost uh, 3-4 in the final, and and then we'd have been in a better position. But uh, the final was an anti-climax, and uh, there are reasons for that, and we go maybe right to the nub of the matter. Um, So, you know, no manager is perfect. And... Liverpool were there for the taking. The question has to be asked, why didn't Tottenham take them? You want me to answer that? Well, you've asked your own question, so (laughs) away you go. Well, the answer is that um, whilst Pochettino is good, he's not perfect. And we'll go into him in detail a little more later, I think, when we... Maybe there's a nice comparison with him and Ferguson and Wenger. But I think that there are two key key matches which point to the fact that... uh, he couldn't get the best out of his players when he needed to. 
when they drew against Chelsea, when they were very lucky and they had a half-time lead of 2-0 in the game when they were racing for the title with Leicester. They needed to beat Chelsea and they blew it. And I think that was possibly down to the manager as well as the players. Um, And in the final, you know, Tottenham hadn't won anything. And if you don't have a winning mentality, then maybe when your chips are down and it's all there for you, you just don't have that experience to call upon. And therefore, perhaps the premium that was put on the league and the Champions League and not on the FA Cup or the League Cup was probably wrong. You know, Tottenham do need to win something in order to create the self-confidence that comes from a winning mentality. But, I mean, I'll I'll say this, obviously I'm as biased as hell, but I will look back on the game against Man City where Sterling's goal, everyone thought that was a fine goal, VIR um, counted it out. Uh, but I thought that they were done for there. I thought they were rather fortunate to get through that. And against Ajax, I mean, great second half performance in Amsterdam, of course. But Ajax hit the post, which would have destroyed. Yes. So they were absolutely on a knife edge, both of those games. And so certainly many fans will say, well, they were fortunate to get through absolutely. those two that, games. And of course, there's only one point from the first three group games. That's right. So you can flip that around and say, well, hell, they've shown a lot of spirit, a lot of no, gumption to react. Of course that's true. But more lady luck than anything else. I mean, you have to accept that. It was uh, the sort of circumstances that, that befelled Tottenham, you know, are most unlikely to, uh, for all the cards to fall that way again. And they made the most of their luck in order to, to get to the final, then they didn't have any luck in the final and they didn't have the necessity to actually do what was what was required how much is pochettino the fulcrum of their success i mean because he's been linked obviously successful at at, at tottenham and he's been linked with other clubs manchester united it's been in the papers for ages for example as he's a good fit for manchester united uh real madrid so how much is he the nub of their success and if he were to go would it be likely to fall away very quickly in your opinion well the answer is yes and yes he is the fulcrum of their success but as i said there are criticisms that can be justified or perhaps justifiably leveled against him um if he was to go, it would leave Tottenham in a hole because he's been allowed to run the playing side, rather like Wenger was allowed to run the playing side at Arsenal. And when you give people absolute power, and he does, I mean, despite his protestations, uh, he runs it with his uh, Spanish assistants. Sorry, not necessarily they're all Spanish, but there is this Hispanic attitude. It's almost like a Kabul um, and they run it themselves. And if they were to go, then Tottenham would be bereft because they hadn't had any injections of English football culture while this has been going on. You've also got to put Daniel Levy into the equation because uh, he has recognised that uh, to have a successful business, you've got to have a successful team. But you don't go into debt in order to have a successful business. So there's a balance there, and and that has brought some sort of uh, controversy between the two of them. But they seem to get on fine, and they have their ups and downs, and that's as it should be. The problem is that, um, unlike Ferguson, who Pochettino admired and looked up to, um, Pochettino's not challenged. He has his assistance. There's no challenge from outside. There's no uh, English culture that that is coming in to help him at all. Isn't English culture absolutely necessary? I think so. I really do think that the, you because because the the movement flips between whether whether that's useful or not. It. I think it's useful, but you can you can supersede it with money. For example, as Manchester City and Liverpool have done to some extent, so then English culture isn't so important. But you still have to have an appreciation of what the Premier League means and what it means to fans. And whilst Pochettino may be surrounded by this Hispanic cabal, 
he is the true successor of people like Bill Nicholson. And um, he has his own way of playing what is called to Tottenham fans, the Spurs way. You know, the Spurs way is entertaining football played by stars, um, uh, hopefully resulting in success. People misquote Danny Blanchard's famous quote about the game being about glory. Uh, Blanchard also said it was about winning in style, you know, and and not... uh, letting the other team die of boredom. So winning is an important ingredient in the Spurs way, but it's been forgotten along the way, certainly by critics of Tottenham. And Pochettino has restored that. So you could say that um, almost by osmosis, not not through any um, appreciation of what the history and tradition of the club is, but he is a true descendant of Bill Nicholson. Is that belief in the Spurs way which is playing football with flair and with skill and at pace and not long ball <laughs> you know when 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 England was playing a long ball game or the English game was a long ball game they had Glenn Hoddle who was a long pass merchant which is yeah. very different and that that is true even as a as a Arsenal man I, I I would say that Spurs sides have always had a fluidity to them but they haven't been successful. It is 61 since they've won a league. It is 91 since they've won an FA Cup. It is one trophy this century. Now, is that very belief in the Spurs way affecting their ability to be more pragmatic at times and win trophies? Um, generally, maybe not last year because we're talking about the Champions League. But generally. Well, I would say that if they'd adhered to the Spurs way right through their history, they would have been more successful. The, the, the problem was that they had a number of managers who didn't understand the Spurs way. Um, goodness me, they, uh, George Graham was most successful for Arsenal and he was an Arsenal man, six trophies in eight years. But George Graham at Tottenham? I mean, what on earth, what on earth was all that about? Um, and therefore, it was really departing from the Spurs way. Graham himself would say, um, well, I won a League Cup without all that Spurs way malarkey. But the Spurs way, as practiced by Pochettino, as developed first of all by Arthur Rowe in the 50s when they won a title, and then taken on by Bill Nicholson, is integral to the history and tradition of the club and is important. But you have to have winning with style. People forget that bit. It's winning with style. Um, The bonus is with a team liberally sprinkled with stars. And they've always had stars along the way. And you've got to remember that that Spurs were the first club, English club, to win a European trophy. Um, They won the UEFA Cup twice. Um, They're now in the Champions League. Getting to the final was the furthest that they've ever been in Europe. So does the Spurs way matter? Yes. And if you adhered to it properly then Spurs would have had more success in the past. You mentioned Daniel Levy. I don't know the man at all. But the reputation, in if you read the newspapers and you watch the, watch the football media, is uh, a very determined, um, hard-headed man who's pushed Tottenham forward and made them uh, more commercially successful, no matter what, at, a, at a maybe a human cost, you could argue at times. Is the position he's got the club into now, in his mind, a justification of that attitude? And were we always working towards this? Or is it it's, it's, it's just worked out for him in the end? Because there's been a lot of criti- critics of him en route to this position, which is currently a very strong position, of course. Well, a cliche that football, that football pundits use is that the proof is in the pudding. It's actually not. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, which means that when you look at what Tottenham have achieved, more success in the Premier European competition than they've ever had in their history, and a fine state-of-the-art stadium, then what Daniel Levy has striven for has been ultimately successful. But along the way, things could have been a bit smoother. He's learned along the way because he came in to football... Unlike someone like David Dean, 
who came into Arsenal, knowing how important Arsenal was to his life and therefore it was to other people, you know, of like mind, and therefore put everything in front of Arsenal and what he wanted to do was to get a winning team. I don't think that was uh, Levy's objective. If it had been as yet to get a winning team, then he'd been more successful in business earlier. The problem was that he was working in an antiquated stadium at White Hart Lane every week that went by compared to the Emirates. We'll talk about the Emirates as a stadium in a minute because it's most important and it's a defect that Arsenal have imposed upon themselves. Nevertheless, in sheer monetary terms, every week that went by, Tottenham at White Hart Lane, Arsenal at the Emirates, Tottenham fell another million pounds behind Arsenal. Now, that's a handicap that Arsenal are now facing because they're in the Europa League and Tottenham are in the Champions League. So uh, Tottenham earned £90 from the Champions League last year. Arsenal earned less than half of that through the Europa League. So in terms of success, you had to prioritise the team. Arsenal did that. David Dean got Arsene Wenger and the first years of Arsene Wenger were absolutely glorious. The great problem with Arsenal has been what has happened when they set the bar so high and failed to live up to it. And that was their own fault. You know, their, their own fault. They have fallen from their own high standards because of their carelessness. Uh, Tottenham, on the other hand, have learnt from other people's mistakes. It's taken time. And now we had a position, if you wind back to the beginning of the Wenger years, Wenger took Arsenal's style enhanced and embellished it, won titles and doubles. Amazing. And gave so much pleasure to so many people, and non-Arsenal fans as well, because of the, the style of play. But it was in the Tottenham tradition. Then, Wenger lost his way. We'll talk about that. And it's what his, no man has a monopoly of the truth. And he lost his way because he wasn't challenged, and the board indulged him. So it was self-imposed. And whilst this was going on, Levy was learning at Tottenham. He was learning and he realised that, that what he needed was a stadium that gave you match day income. But in order to do that, he had to have a successful team. I mean, that's the interesting thing. This, you've written a book about 2018-19 and it's about the Champions League. I'd argue more importantly, much more importantly for the club, is getting that stadium up and taking the step change of... of, of moving from an antiquated stadium into a new stadium which of course Arsenal did in 2006 and yeah. it was a big leap at the time the, the argument is now Tottenham have, have uh, leapfrogged because I've never been to their stadium yet but everyone says it's absolutely magnificent well they may not leapfrog Arsenal if they make the same mistakes that Arsenal have but Arsenal realised that, that you know there were 30,000 fans outside that they couldn't cater for so they needed a bigger stadium what they did is that they didn't understand really their true brand values and Tottenham are at this crossroads um, and unfortunately I think they're going to follow the wrong path, the path that Arsenal took. Arsenal have called their stadium the Emirates. It's the sponsor who owns the stadium in effect by naming um, and who had no connection with the club before, a Middle East airline. And what's the stadium going to be called when, when they've had their fill of it and leave? Arsenal made the mistake of not looking at what Manchester United have done. Manchester United are the strongest brand in the UK. And let, let me just point out that there's no shame in looking at your football club as a brand because what a brand does, it provides emotional and rational values and it treats fans like customers. It looks at the fact that if you're a brand... You need to satisfy the customer, realising that, unlike fans, a customer can take the business elsewhere. And as a brand, Arsenal are a very strong brand, Tottenham are a very strong brand, but they are nowhere in the line of Manchester United. And one of the reasons that Manchester United is such a strong brand, of course, is its history of... of, uh, their history of heritage and tradition, which is tragedy and triumphs, and particularly their domination in the Premier League era, but also the fact that the stadium they can call in their own nomenclature, their own terms, 
the theatre of dreams it's not sponsored and therefore it's an integral integral part of the united message and as such united as a message to their fans is much more wholesome than arsenal's for example who play in the emirates of course arsenal needed the money to help build the stadium but why not have the fact that it could have been called the emirates highbury stadium or the emirates chapman stadium something that had Uh, you're making a compromise you're taking the money on the one hand but you're still retaining your values on the other the values which heritage and tradition have given you chapman realized it in the 30s look what he did with name renaming the the local underground station if chapman had been alive now he might have needed the money but he certainly would have not sold it to the emirates lock stock and barrel in terms of name it's interesting that's an interesting point that you brought up because i mean i would argue that if you call it if you call a stadium i I don't know the hewlett packard white hart lane stadium for example everyone ends up calling it white hart lane and the and the brand value and the and the value to the sponsor is down um and the other the other point i'd I'd make out of what you said is there's no shame in fans thinking of themselves um, or clubs thinking of themselves as a brand because that helps in the way that supporters are, are treated I, I I think there's a lot in what you said because then you have got standards of customer service etc yeah. etc cetera, et cetera. but it does implicit in that in my opinion is you're treating the customer as a commodity as well with a financial value to it and that's where I think fans have got the biggest issue rather than the human aspect of it that you're, you're treating people as a as a commodity, a, 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 a value, a, a financial value. If you do that, it's because you don't understand marketing. Perhaps I don't understand marketing. <laughs> well, no, I, no, you you were putting a point to me. I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm saying that if clubs if clubs treat fans as commodities, then they don't understand the marketing tools at their disposal. Um, if you if you look at a fan. As a customer, you realise he can take his business elsewhere. He or she. Uh, yes, he or she. <laughs> they. <laughs> you know, young and old. They can take their business elsewhere. Of course they can't. And because fans are different from customers. You know, you might be a loyal shopper at Marks and Spencer's, but it doesn't prevent you taking advantage of Waitrose special offers of the week. And you don't think anything about that. But, you know, if you don't like what's going on in N17, you're not going to move to N5 anyway. Ever. So the point is that clubs realise that and therefore they exploit fans. They exploit their loyalty. That's why you have to pay these astronomical prices to get into the ground and you have to pay high prices for merchandise and it's all to do with identification with the club and the loyalty is exploited and there's no need for that. But that's because it's more far-reaching than that. The system is wrong. Um, the system is wrong because the Premier League is the only league to play in and the only way to have success whether it's success going for the title or just retaining your status is players and therefore you throw money at players wages and transfers so players have paid these obscene wages because there's no future outside the Premier League and who pays for the obscene wages you'd have thought with the 5.1 billion domestic broadcast deal you could afford to sponsor the fans, particularly because the fans provide the... They're more like film extras. You know, without the fans, do you think that Sky would be paying for the... The, the, the fans make the event. And football is both a live event and a television spectacular. And from being a television spectacular, that's where the money derives from. But it will only come if you have a live event of substance. And you'll only have a live event of substance in a full ground. So why do the fans have to pay the sort of unreasonable prices they're asked to? And that's because the clubs have got it wrong and they've paid the players too much. So the inmates, the players, have taken over the asylum, which is the Premier League. And that's because we don't have a proper structure. The scenario that I've just painted doesn't happen in Germany. Why? Because you have 40 clubs that matter. Bundesliga 1, Bundesliga 2. And below that you have regional football. What they recognise is that you have national events and local events. And the game is structured for that. So 
clubs can move up and down, players can move up and down, coaches can move up and down. There isn't just one league that takes all the hype and all of the money. And it's totally wrong in this country. And until we get it right, we will only succeed in spite of the system, not because of it. Not disagreeing with anything you said. I'm just going to throw this back to Tottenham because one of the issues that's thrown at Tottenham, in a positive sense, is that the normally the wages table and the league table correlate pretty much exactly. That's and, true. The, and, more, the more you pay in wages, the more success you have. Yeah. But the interesting thing is with, with Tottenham is that they were having finishing three or four, but they were perhaps five or six in that, in that yeah. wages table, yeah. which is, is a, a, a big efficiency. So the, the argument is, with Tottenham, is that they need to pay their players more or this team will break up because they will be going elsewhere because they can get that money elsewhere. And now, of course, that's the other side of what you just spoke about, where you're paying the players too much, which is generally across the board. But in order to keep up, you've got to keep these wages competitive or your team breaks up and you are not so successful. You understand the point I'm making? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But the 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 point that I was making was that why do you have to pay those obscene wages in the first place? Well, but having okay, but, but they are being paid, so and and therefore you have to you know if you can't beat them you've got to join them. It's as simple as that. And if you don't, you'll lose. Uh, and the other point of losing is um, that teams don't tend to stay together for for more than because you know stars are in such demand and there's such temptation elsewhere i mean th- this is the false situation that's been created through the premier league the fact is you can't hold on to players and tell them the same sort of things for more than three or four years tottenham have again not only on wages but again in terms of what i've just described that they they've broken that rule as well because the players have been together for five years or so all the time that Pochettino has been there. Now, how long can he keep saying the same things to the same players? He, you might argue that he's already reached his peak last season. Um, and it's quite possible that he has. Um, again, you see, to take his hero, uh, Alex Ferguson, what Alex Ferguson did was constantly refresh not only his staff, but to some extent, a number of key players. Um, certainly there were certain key players that he kept for much longer you know than five years uh, Giggs, Scholes, Keane um, but there are others stars of the team that he felt they'd peaked and he'd got the best out of them and he sold them that hasn't happened at Tottenham and has to happen it has to happen but if you're going to sell them you've got to buy world class replacements in other words, you've got to buy improvements. Now, that's what Daniel Levy hasn't been prepared to do so far. Um, he's had one really bad experience when he's spent the bail money. They bought seven players, of whom only two are still at the club. Only one is an undoubted success, Christian Eriksen, and another who could be a, a success, Eric Lamella. But that's a very poor return, which is why the, the he stopped spending money in the way he has and only this season um, does he realise that in order to spend he's got to accumulate we've talked a little bit about Arsenal Tottenham that relationship there but there's of course another cross town rivalry that has flipped in recent years which is Man United Man City yes but of course we'd argue for the last four or five years Man City have been by far the most successful, but Man United are still the bigger brand, okay? That's a bigger business. A bigger business, yeah, but, but are they the bigger brand as well? Yes, absolutely, okay, by so far. Manchester City... So it's not down to success, that's my, my short-term success. Yeah, exactly, it's got to be long-term success. And you've got to remember United have a 50-year start, and they've dominated the Premier League era, still. You know, they've still more titles, and they've also won Champions League, which City haven't. City are, uh, you know, for a a fan like myself, um, and I'm not a fan like you because, you know, I like several clubs, particularly those that have treated me nicely. But some teams are so great they belong to all of us. So you can get a lot of pleasure from the current City team, but you still have the thought in the back of your mind, you know, of where their money comes from. 
um, you know, it hasn't been earned in the way that, for example, United's money was earned. United's money was earned on the playing field. City's money has earned its largesse given to them by an extremely affluent benefactor who has ulterior motives other than being just a football fan. Um, and you've you've got to remember that. I think you've always got to remember that. So however much joy they bring you by watching them play, you've got to remember that they are really taking advantage of a system which they shouldn't be given advantage of. And final, financial fair play has sort of wrapped them on the knuckles, but it means nothing to them because they are so wealthy. Are the rivalries, talking Man United or... Man United, Man City, are those rivalries almost a distraction? Because these are now global brands. I mean, I work in Asia a lot, and <laughs> those games, there's people getting up at four or five o'clock and going to bars and, and going to coffee shops to watch these teams play. Are, are the derbies a distraction? Should they be thinking in Champions League terms? All those clubs need to win a Champions League. Man City need to win a Champions League. You know, to get up with Man United. Man United need to, to, to win one to regain their former glory. You know, as an Arsenal fan, I was dead scared about Tottenham winning one before we did, which had never been a factor until two years ago. Well, it's a really good question. But the, the point is the local rivalry is important because brands are local as well as international. But in, in true status terms, what matters... Because, as you rightly said, Richard, there are millions of fans across the world. What matters is the Premier Club competition, which is the Champions League. So that should always be prioritised. And, you know, it makes me smile when you hear people saying, well, we'd like to win the Premier League first. Well, the Premier League is really only a stepping stone to the Champions League. Because these are worldwide businesses with worldwide fans of millions and millions and millions. But you've, to get into the Champions League, you've got to be successful domestically. But being successful domestically, I would argue, is not finishing fourth, but winning the title. Therefore, it really grated when Arsene Wenger said, after his first flush of success, our first trophy is, of course, fourth place. Not for Arsenal. First trophy for Arsenal is winning the Premier League. You've done it before, for goodness sake. I mean... For Arsenal to settle for fourth place was a dereliction of duty. <laughs> Moving on, I don't want to go down an Arsenal rabbit hole here. But you yes. have this talk at Birkbeck, and it's it's a free, well. First of all, it's a free talk. Yeah. Secondly, it's, it's Monday it'll the twenty third. Alex, you don't need to plug it. It'll all be in the notes. I'm just get all in the notes. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. We will plug this talk. So, <laughs> but it's called how Arsenal have lost their way and Spurs have found theirs. My question. Well, that's that's the subhead. It's not the, what the title is. The title is Arsenal and Spurs past, present, and future. Okay, okay. But my question about Arsenal losing their way, Tottenham finding yeah. theirs. And by the way, the answer to this is no. Is is this a permanent shift? <laughs> is this a permanent shift? No. Is, no, it's not. No. Good, good. I'm glad the answer is no. no. <laughs> but there has to be a change of attitude at Arsenal, a more significant change of attitude at Arsenal than at Tottenham. But there has to be a change of attitude at both clubs. As you said earlier when you made an excellent point, if Tottenham are not going to be left behind, you know, they've got to join the big spenders. And what they've got to get are world-class players. Now, same as Arsenal. I mean, it is palpably apparent for years and years and years, first of all under Wenger and now under the current manager, that Arsenal need world-class defenders. Yet they still prioritise world-class attackers. So, I mean, I don't know why fans can see that, you know, and managers who are paying millions and millions of pounds a year can't see it, unless there are other factors in play, which of course there are, which is that the owners of Arsenal see Arsenal as self-sufficient, so they don't put money in, in order to eventually buy success. They want success to become organic, so... The more success you have, the more money you have in terms of self-sufficiency. But you've got to buy success in the first place. So what Arsenal have to have is a change of philosophy. Now maybe with Emery and young Josh Cronkay, there is going to be a change. But it has to be a quantum leap 
what we'll get at the moment from Arsenal is an improvement, but not a quantum leap. So it has to be a quantum leap, which means that we have to invest in the club. So, and at Tottenham, what Daniel Levy has to realise is he's got to pay what other people pay, and more, because he needs world-class players. And arguably, he hasn't got too many of those. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, I'm not disagreeing with a lot of that. I would say, though, if you look at the table last year, in the Premier League anyway, at the end of the season, it was a gentleman's excuse me to try and get into that, into that Champions League place. And Arsenal, Arsenal blew it. I thought Tottenham blew it because they lost too many games at the end. It's just Arsenal blew it worse. And then in comes Chelsea, which nobody expected. And, and they actually took third place. It was, it was a, I don't know, I think it blew some theories out, out, out of the water. The fact that it was as close as it was, of course, Arsenal and Tottenham only divided by the one point in the end. Um, and yet they'd both been very poor at the end of the season. Yeah, well, OK, they both had other objectives. Maybe their priorities should have been to secure Champions League football for the following season. But Tottenham were concentrating on Champions League football that season. Yeah, and Arsenal weren't. Arsenal should. Arsenal win the Europa League. No, they wanted to win the Europa League. But the Europa League was also the, the, the in biggest terms of Europa money, League is getting into the Champions League. Isn't it? Yes, well, that's they could do the other. Well, way. that's 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 what their priority was: a to earn some money by winning the Europa League, but b to secure their place in next season's Champions League. That's what they felt. You think so? I'm, I'm well, I th- well, I think so. Let's move on to the In Champions In other words, um, all right, so, so let's look at it. I'm determined not to go down Arsenal, Arsenal rabbit hole, by the way. Ellen. No. <laughs> go on, go on. No, it, no, but, was, but you can. I was just saying that, that, that it's possible to focus on two things, uh, and maybe they should have done, but they, neither of them did. Let's talk about the Champions League, because the last time we spoke, y- you were putting forward your own idea about how the Champions League could turn into a proper European League. Those stories and rumours have only got more solid, in my opinion, about that. And there is certainly a feeling that this is going to happen at some point, or at least there'll be a move to make it happen. Um, What have you made about the more recent stories surrounding this issue? And, of course what it does to the Premier League in comparison overall. Well, if we go back many, many years, um, when I was working in advertising, we had Silvio Berlusconi as one of our clients in Italy. And one day I got a call from them to say, design a Super League for Silvio Berlusconi, which I did. And my head was turned, I was flattered, I gave him what I thought he, he wanted, not what football needed necessarily which is what is being talked about now all these many many years later which is a league for big clubs guaranteeing big events so that you have sold out stadium and millions and millions watching on television across the world and this is what's driving the changes in the champions league in other words um the big clubs want more guaranteed events Uh, and that's not what football should be about football should be about merit Uh, if you ask the question which is why the European Cup came about in the first place which is the best team in Europe the answer is the team that wins the European League of course you couldn't have a European League in, in the 50s because of transport and communication and broadcasting all being in their infancy but you could have now. But the problem is nobody cares about the second-rate clubs. Nobody cares about them. Um, and from a TV perspective, a TV viewership? Well, yes. Not just from a TV perspective, but the clubs themselves. The clubs themselves pay these astronomical wages to players. Therefore, they need more money from television. Television need big spectaculars. The big spectaculars are not you know, uh, Real Madrid versus Apple Nicosia. But it should be in a league if you divided it accordingly. You know, uh, if you divide it according to merit, if Apple Nicosia in Division 3 of the European League were good enough, they might be able to play Real Madrid one day by getting to the first division. You know, that's what Norwich have done domestically, for example. Why can't that happen in a European team? 
particularly if you structure it properly and not as we structure it in England. I mean, the Football League are a nonsense, an absolute nonsense. You know, they've allowed Berry and Bolton to go to the wall. And it, the, if I, sorry, I'm, I'm using the same expression in a different way, but the writing was on the wall many, many years ago because they don't recognise you do not survive by playing more games. In England, we play more games in more divisions than any other country. It's crazy. No other major football country has more than 20 clubs in a division. And at the bottom, they go local. Anyway, that, that's a different subject. But the, but the point is that our system is totally wrong here. If we want a system to follow, we should look at the way the Germans do it. And the, the way the Germans do it can be extrapolated to the way that the European League could happen. In other words, you have maybe four divisions, clubs going on merit according to how they've... Uh, qualified through their domestic league and through coefficients through UEFA so you might have two or three Spanish clubs in the top division one in the second division you know and one maybe in the fourth division but in the fourth division you'd also have the champions of Slovakia now, isn't that what football about universal and wouldn't it be nice to see the champions of Slovakia one day play Real Madrid and it doesn't matter if you know uh, if they get beaten they'll learn and they'll improve and that's what UEFA should be about, but they're not. UEFA in, are really doing the big clubs bidding, and they've only put off the evil day, you know, for a couple of years. And the Champions League is a good compromise at the moment, because although it's weighted towards the big battalions, um, and if you look at the last 16 and the last 32, they all come from the top four or five European countries, almost without exception. Well, we want it to be more universal and we want to give teams a chance that merit will count and therefore you've got to produce a more equitable system and the only way you'll do that is to produce a, and try and produce a proper league system. But nobody's interested in that. As you just said at the beginning of this question, the broadcasters want these big events for millions and millions of people viewing. Just while you, we're on... Berry and Bolton, because you mentioned that. That's a real shot across the bows for football that Berry's effectively gone out of business. Hopefully there's a possibility they might come back, but they're out of business for this season. And Bolton, obviously, it was it was it went down to the wire for them as well. The hardest thing is for traditional institutions, sporting institutions especially because they're very emotional, to reform themselves. Is there an actual opportunity because you've now got the lower reaches of the of of the of the league um, to a certain extent scared of what might happen and that will mean they're more open to change or am I being optimistic? You're being optimistic and unrealistic. I worked for Bolton. I did their UEFA Cup rights. I sold Bolton versus Marseille for thousands and thousands of pounds. So for me to see Bolton, who treated me very, very well, and I have a soft spot in my heart, it is painful because I know how much it's hurtful for the true Bolton fans. And it's so unnecessary this should have happened. What should have happened, and the FA are to blame here, because when the Premier League was created, there were two reasons that the FA supported the breakaway clubs. One was because they thought it would benefit the England team. And I, this is what I told them. I was their consultant at the time. And I told them, but in order to do that, you've got to tell these clubs, you start with 18 or you don't start at all. Otherwise, there's no time and space for the England team at the top of what would have been a pyramid of excellence. And the second reason was that they saw an opportunity once and for all to destroy the power of the Football League. The Football League had come to them with a, a power-sharing agreement, one game, one team, one voice, and a really good document, a proposal. But the FA, with their own self-serving short-term interests, couldn't wait to take the opportunity to blow the Football League out of the water. What should have happened was the plan I gave them you know, I don't 
I don't put myself up as a, as a great expert, but a lot of this is derived, A, from a marketing background, and B, common sense, and C, with a dash of being a football fan and lo- loving the game, but not being slavish to any particular club or institution. So what works in football are events. You've got major events and you've got local events. So create a system where every club has its place. And this is a system, a major national division of 18, 20 clubs at the most. National division under that of another 20 clubs maximum. And then a third division of national division of 20 clubs. And then under that, three regional divisions of 20 clubs. So taking the, the Berry case, you wouldn't go and make Berry go and play Plymouth. What you would do is you'd make Berry play um, Salford, Morecambe. Exactly. Uh, well, well uh, other, cl- other non-league clubs as well, because they would be in a regional division. So I, I, I'm more used to doing it through um, the southwest than I am in the <laughs> northwest. So if we were taking um, Plymouth, for example, you wouldn't go and make them play Carlisle, but they'd play Tiverton and Torquay. So you'd have three regional divisions at the bottom. And you'd obviously have Lefts Cos, because at this level, local derbies are the stuff of life, you'd have higher attendances. And because you'd be playing fewer games, you know, you'd have lower overheads as a club. So lower overheads, higher attendances... I mean, it makes common sense, but the Football League only know one way because they are so exploited in terms of broadcasting deals that they only know one way. Play more matches, earn more money. But football is not like running a railway. You know, just you've got to run the 310, so you might as well run it with eight coaches as four coaches. It's not like that. But that is the attitude of the owners in the Football League. They will never vote to reduce the league. Why is it that we are the only country in Europe that plays with 24 clubs in a division? Which is nonsense, because there are always a number of stragglers. If you had 20, everybody would be playing for something. Promotion, playoffs, the avoidance of relegation. Quality would be higher because you'd lose the stragglers. Because all games would be more meaningful, you'd have higher attendances. I'm now repeating myself. You'd also have lower overheads. It's so sensible. But why didn't it happen? Because of vested interest and because of the stupidity of the owners. And it will never happen because we miss that point. But it happens in Germany. And look at what Germany have done. Of course, you might say, well, Bayern Munich are unusual. Um, but other clubs are contenders as well as Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund have become contenders and mainstays later and look at the success of A, German clubs in European competition and B, the success of the German national team so you can have your cake and eat it if you've got the right system but we haven't got the right system we'll never have the right system and I repeat, success from the England national team is against the system in spite of it rather than because of it it hasn't helped them we've come to the party many years too late but at least we've arrived at the party but we should have been successful many many years before both on a national level and in terms of european football in terms of club success how many english players are key key parts of their national of their club side one or two exceptions to the rule but there should be five or six just the final couple you brought up an interesting point is that does english sport just widening it to sport have a problem in reforming itself and taking on the very solving the very difficult problems I mean, I've got an issue at the moment with cricket, the way that cricket's trying to reform Absolutely, me as well. I'm a cricket fan. Yeah, a cricket fan. And, and we've had it with rugby league um, as well in the past, where there was basically a night of the long knives, it seems, in the in the 90s, I think it was. And, that's, and that decimated Bradford Northern didn't exist yeah. anymore, etc. And that was at least changed. I'm not sure if it's, it's... I'm not a rugby league expert, but I'm not sure if it's given the long-term success that they wanted. We've got the same thing in cricket, we've got the same thing with the EFL, maybe the Premier League going forward, there's challenges ahead there, they'll have to reform themselves. And is it the 
the weight of history is that actually a millstone around our necks at times with regard to making significant change and putting ourselves and turning our face around not looking in the past but starting to look for the future reform ourselves and, and putting best practice down we can learn from history but we choose not to we can learn from present structures and we choose not to so above all it's an attitude of mind and everything is, is that we the english you're talking yes about? Yeah. we the english and everything is short-termism. You know, nobody's got time to look at long-term. And the costs involved in looking at long-term are too horrendous to take the chance. And it's a system we've created for ourselves. I mean, if we were just to digress for cricket for the moment, um, test cricket is really important and, you know, is the pinnacle of the game. And the only way that you'll make Test cricket survive is to have a, a stable and successful county system. But they've destroyed the county system on the altar of one-day game to try and get a new audience. And the new audience, you do need a new audience, but the new audience is fickle. So you certainly accommodate the one-day game, but not at the expense of the county game, which will be at the expense of the Test team. And the answer to all of this, why they've done it all in this way, short-termism, short-term expediency. Well, Nobody also, looks long-term. And all, but also, isn't it a failure to actually grasp the difficult questions? If we talk about cricket, let's talk about cricket a little bit. Because it, it has been seen to be in decline. Obviously, we've had a great summer. The World Cup was, 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 was sold out. The, the tests have, have, have been virtually sold out from what I gather as well. Um, and yet... The, the game, by many important measures, see, it has been in decline for, uh, for decades. And yet we seem in a, unable to grasp the difficult questions because of all the history around it and the, and the noise around it and having to accept everybody's view rather than this is good for the game as a whole. It might be bad for your short-term interest, but we need to look after the game as a whole. And that is looking more further forward and future-looking. You, you get what I'm saying? We just seem to fail as, as a country, a sporting country, where sport's so important to us, but we fail to answer those difficult questions. Well, you've summed it up. There's, the answer to that question, which is more than a question, it's actually a, a very good summary of the situation, the answer is we've got to look long term and we've got to recognise the jewels in our game and every sport has them and protect those. And if that means in order to protect them, you've got to bolster up something which is not going to give you money in the short term, uh, but you need it for the long term, that's what you've got to do. You know, I mean, sports, ha sports have... Uh, they're different proclivities. For example, rugby is a national team game, not a club game. But the two can coexist. Um, but the, the national team shouldn't survive and flourish in rugby union at the expense of the club game. And the club game is a Cinderella sport to some extent. I mean, do you know... The crowds have been good. In recent the crowds have been no, good. No, I will, I will... I'm afraid destroy that argument in one way. The... The revenue of all the premiership clubs, rugby union, is that of West Ham United. Yeah, well, if you compare it with football, that's, that's always going to... No, I'm, gonna I'm looking at it that it's, it's both a live sport and a television event. So they don't, they don't have enough people supporting it at club level. But that may be the answer, that you, know, you have a, a successful club level up to a point but it's never going to match football, of course. And in order to have a successful club level, you'll have a successful national team. So those two coexist reasonably well, but it, it, there were many trials and tribulations before they got to that stage. Cricket, unfortunately, is seduced by money and the prospect of future generations. So they take Sky's money and then say, well, nobody can see it. It's a nonsense. You know, football took Sky's money and David Dean at the, at the time said, well, it was a mistake because how can you make heroes from a minority channel? Well, I mean, we're all allowed to make mistakes, you know, without knowing how. Nobody anticipated what would happen with, with Sky. Um, but what we could have done was to control it in a far better way. And, and there, you do need the 
exposure to the game that Sky gives it both, all their sports gives it, and you need their money. But at the same time, you do need to have a certain amount on free-to-air television, and you need to look at future generations. But it's beyond the wit of the administrators in all English sport to work out a system that provides all those answers. And I'm afraid that if you can look at one sport after another, and they are all open to criticism, and they all do, in the bottom line, all of them, with the best of intentions, they do their sports disservices. On that huge downer, yes. well, <laughs> I'll say thank if you, you ever, much, if you ever, if anybody <laughs> ever interviews me, I always end with a downer. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm sorry uh, about that. That's got uh, Alex Finn. Thank you very much, Richard. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Mr.